So that's when she looks at me and says, "You have to leave, sir." But the sheep stays here. <laughs> what? Why'd you? Why were you? Why'd you have a sheep in the grocery store? I, oh, shit, wait a minute. We're rolling. Oh, all right. Well, then let's roll. Hi, I'm Rich, and I'm Mark, and we are two, two guys, guys on Block Island. Island. I feel that breeze; it's blowing in off the sea. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show Dan Cahill. How are you doing, Dan? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you for inviting me, and I'm happy to be here. Well, we're happy you're here. We sure are. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for taking time to sit with us. We yeah. appreciate it. Definitely. So, it's all part of my job. So uh, why don't we start off real quick. First question is, uh, when did you get here, and how did you get here? Okay. In 1984, the date, January 18th, I came over to put a roof on a house at, on Little Beaver, Jack Foreman's house. And I basically met Tommy Benson and Paul Buckley that day, and they offered me a job. I moved back, to, went back to Westerly, where I was living, packed my car, and moved here and never left. So that instant fell in love with the island? Well, I did, wasn't doing anything in Westerly at the time, and basically that was an offer, and I came out here. Now, I can say this. If I had not come in January and instead came 4th of July, I never would have saved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, you, so you're the opposite of the person who gets sucked into like the, the crazy fun summer and then finds mm -hmm. himself in February saying, what have I done? You're, yeah. you're the complete opposite. Opposite. Because yeah. I had worked at Musquamica Beach for six years. Now, when, oh, so you, you're familiar with that huge influx of people. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that's why I would have never stayed for that reason, because I was bored, done with that stuff. So so you came to put a roof on a house. Yeah. But then what do you end up doing? Was that your main job, or then what happened? Uh, well, I was basically a laborer carrying the things for my two friends. But when I met Paul Buckley and Tommy, they offered me a job at the High View painting. So I basically said, okay, I'll do that. And from that job, I've landed up... Probably having 20 different jobs on Block Island. Okay. W at what point did you meet Captain Nick DiPetrillo? Mm. Well, I would say uh, I met him and Ed the same time. That winter when I was here, uh, Ed used to have the downstairs open, the, the captain's place open in the winter. And I met him and Nick that winter, probably once or twice. Not many times, but I did meet them. And I knew right away they were two of the characters I wanted to be around. And, and for our listeners that don't know who we're talking about, uh, Captain Nick DiPetrillo uh, was a sea captain who yeah. owned uh, the Block Island Inn. That's right. And then uh, at some point he tore it down and built on the same property, but a little further down an incline towards the street, uh, Ocean Avenue, uh, Captain Nick's Rock and Roll Bar. Right. And Ed, you referred to Ed. Now that's, we're talking about Ed McGovern. Right. And I think now Ed was f the first working for Nick already. He was about to, yes. Okay. So tell us a little bit about what the Block Island Inn and Ed McGovern were like and Captain Nick were like in those days. Do you remember the first time you met both those guys? Well, uh, I, I can't say I remember exactly when. Right. But I will tell you that uh, Captain Nick was a type of gentleman who uh, was in my opinion, one of the wildest characters on Block Island for a while because of the way he did things. That's an enormous title. 
Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it is. That's, like, that's a big one. Yeah, yeah, that's like saying you're the biggest nut in the in the right. farm. Because he he did things that you would not think you could get away with. Like what? Well, he tore down the the Block Island Inn when he was borrowing money from the bank to build the Captain Nick on the street, and didn't tell the bank he was tearing that building down. When the bank came out, they said, "Well." You can't do that. That was the collateral. Oh, he said, I didn't know that. That was kind of like his remark. That was Nick. That was the way he was. I will tell you, I knew Nick DiPetrilli before I came to Block Island. How? He used to work for Dick Kiley at the Edge in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. And that was a nightclub? Uh, two nightclubs, the Edge and January's. And he was a doorman for D Dick at those places. Vin McAloon. Uh, was also there, and Dick Kiley's brother. They owned those places in Pawtucket. That's where they came from. Okay. That's when I met him first. And what year was that around? The oh, 70s? that was in the 70s. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I love when I learn stuff on our podcast. Right. I, I, I thought I knew a lot of stuff. That's good. Well, see, I go way back into those days because, you know, Nick and Ed and I are in that age group. Now, basically, when I met Ed, he really, I met him here, and then he left Nick, because they had a falling out. And in 86, he took over the Yellow Kittens. Okay, before we get to that, though, okay. what, oh. what did, now, what was Eddie doing for Nick at the time? He was like the manager bartender. Of the Block Island Inn before. And then okay. ca came downstairs, and he came to the captain down on the street. Basically, the inn had already been torn down when I got here. It was just an, it is the empty space that it is today, mm -hmm. right there. The parking lot. It's a parking lot. Yep. But that was Nick. That was what he did. He did things like he, like Lou Gaffett, another gentleman we have to get into. I, I almost was going to say that's a page out of, yeah. of the Lou Gaffett book. Big time. That yeah. is a page. That, that definitely those two guys wrote the same page. Yeah. They, they were uh, very good friends and they did things, as I call them, as Nickisms. 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 And similar beards. And similar beards. <laughs> right. Yeah. True. That's yeah. Yeah, that's I mean, true. Nick and Lou were good friends. And uh, he definitely should be, not to extend it, but Lou is part of this three-person group. Because those three guys were great friends when they were out socializing. But in business, they were in three separate parts of the pod. And you're talking Nick, Ed, and Lou. Lou. And these are three of the original tavern owners out oh, here. So these it. guys, now we all know that people have discovered Block Island. You know, there's this bar and that bar, and you go here and you go there. But back in the day, these were the three guys that created the nightlife scene yeah, here yes, on were. Block Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Nick basically allowed Ed to keep open Captain Nick's down on the street in the winter so that Ed would have a job to do, and there was no really bars other than Lou's Monday Night Club. So, I mean, I remember going into this building, and there was a guy by the name of, oh, I got to think of, Hacksaw was one of them. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, there was another one. He was throwing chairs into the fireplace to keep the building warm. Burning the furniture, I called it. I mean, and I said to myself, where's the heat? And they said, oh, there is none. But because they didn't think of things like that. It's like when they did the, the St. Patrick's Day, they ran the hose from here over to the 
historical society or vice versa to be able to cook the, the corned beef. <laughs> I mean, you know, that, that's what these guys did. Cooked I mean, by garden hose. Um, right. That's Ed, it. I can tell you one story that Ed's sister told me. She was working as a waitress and she had customers sitting down at a table and they moved two tables together. And Nick went crazy and said, you can't, don't ever let anybody do that. Only I can move those tables. And Ed's sister went crying up to Ed and said, Nick yelled at me for, and Ed just told her, forget about it. That's Nick. Don't, don't, don't let it be personal. <laughs> just, just, that's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. Right. Let yeah. him yell, but don't listen. Yeah, yeah just don't listen. Yeah. You know, and that's what it was. Okay. So you, so anyway, you and, uh, you and Eddie, right. uh, Ed McGovern, Ed has a falling out with Nick. And then how do you link up with Ed well, and, and move over across the street? He basically, with Ani Flagg, and Donald Hauser went into partnership at Winfield's and McGovern's. At, well, it was Yellow Kittens at the time. Uh, Ani and Ed took over the club, and Ani and D uh, D Doug Hauser took over Winfield's. That's how the corporation went. Okay. Donald lasted one year, one year. And they more or less pushed him out the door. I, I don't know if they pushed him out. Maybe he left voluntarily, yeah. but he was gone. Okay. And then it became Ani and Ed as a partnership. In 1986, I introduced myself to Ed. I walked in one day when they were doing work and said, look, if you ever need anything, bands, anything like that, I said, I'd be more than willing to help you. That's just what I do for a living. So Ed and I hit it off. Okay. And... More or less, I started hanging around in 87 in the club and just started basically doing things for him. At the time, Amadeo was kind of like the cleaner, and Amadeo got a little sick. So Ed said to me one day, you want to take this job over? And that's how I more or less moved in. I moved in that way okay. to become the cleaner and that stuff. And then in 87, I started doing concerts like I did James Cotton, I did an LBQ, uh, James Montgomery with Duke Robillard. So I did those concerts with Ed's help. Yep. And then in 1988, I more or less went to work for Ed as an assistant. And then in 89, Ed bought Ani out of the re restaurant mm -hmm. and we took it over completely. And Ed ran for first warden. And I said to Ed, you go run the town and I'll become the manager of the club. And what I did was Casey Perry and I became night and day manager. Okay. And that's, I've been there ever since. Wow. Until 2013, I left for a year, and then the Kylies more or less needed help, and I went back again Okay. for a bunch more. When you, when you made this switch, or yeah. when you joined, when they right. split and you were over there, did this start to create some sort of a rivalry between... Uh, you know, because obviously you're both trying for the same crowd. Yellow you're, Kittens and Captain Yeah, Nicks. Captain Nicks and Yellow Kittens are both trying to do, you know, it's like two restaurants next to each other. And was there a rivalry between the two? Mm, I would say yes. I don't think it was uh, out on the street saying, like, you know, talking bad about each other. But I know that Ed, more or less, the bands that Ed booked at Captain Nicks, more or less came over to the Yellow Kittens the first couple of years, the same bands, 
you know, and then he added more bands, but some of the old original, like the Memphis Rockabillies and, and uh, you know, different different bands from New Hampshire, Joe Burrell and the Unknown Blues Band, those guys went to the, the Yellow Kittens. Okay. And so you now you become the talent buyer for the club, the, the booking agent. Right. And um and so how many nights w- were you doing entertainment? How seven nights a week in the beginning. So you'd had bands seven nights a seven week nights during a the week. summer season, obviously. We, well, actually, we started in April. Oh, really? And we ran them until after almost Halloween. Wow! And these are the days before again the the horrific tragedy that was the Station Nightclub right. fire. So, uh, you know, there weren't a whole lot of rules or regulations no. about capacity. Or uh, you know, over serving people. No. Um, can you speak a little bit to the general vibe of what the you know club was like? Was it just crazy all the time, or you know? Well, I would say this. One thing I did, I was not a night person, so I can say this: I was the day judge person, and Casey did the nights. He liked the nights. I liked the days. I I was not drinking, so I didn't basically want to hang around, but. I can say I could tell by what the floors look like in the morning <laughs> how busy the place was. That became a normal. Oh, I knew man. if there was trash out the door, they had a good night. Yeah. Even before I counted the money. I could just tell by that. And that was something that became part of my life. The trash outside was another factor. If the dumpster was full, you know you had a lot of booze. So. Right. Yeah, that- it was that way. And then, you know, when you do... Ed was a very popular person at that time. I would say that people came to the kittens because Ed was a good guy. He took care of a lot of people. Yeah. And I say that right out. Yep. I mean, he was, I almost want to say he was taking advantage, but he doesn't feel that way, but I do. But that that was Ed's persona. He, yeah. he liked being... Mr. Nice Guy. Ed was the consummate politician. Oh, yes. You know, I mean, shaking hands. Hello, brother. You know, he was just, everybody loved Ed. Yeah. And, and he, let's clarify, he still is a great guy. Right. You know, I love right. catching up with him. But right. I love when Ed would go, you know, he'd walk in with a group and Ed would go, everyone's drinks on me. And he'd, oh, he'd he walk away it. and the bartender <laughs> would go, yeah, you get one. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, that's not going to happen. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, you know, Annie is great for, I, I use her. <laughs> Annie Hall. Yeah. yeah. Annie Hall, Only yeah. because, you know, she has been with Ed as long as I have. Right. Annie started for David Aldrich as a waitress on the deck in 87. And Ed pulled her off the floor and put her behind the bar so Todd uh, McMasters could go bike riding with him. He, Todd was the bartender. He'd say, come on, Todd, we're going for a bike ride. Annie, you become the bartender. And that's how Annie became a bartender at the Kittens. It's, wow. it's the honest to God truth. Ed does, that used to do that a lot. He yeah. would just pull somebody off the, the bar and just go bunky riding or go sailing or whatever it was. That was to Ed. Ed, Ed was, to me, he was the consummate politician. He was. You know, I, I actually, this is the first time I'm dropping this. Uh, I thought of Annie yesterday that she might be a pretty good guest oh, on this yeah, podcast. Absolutely. Great stories yes. over time. Oh, yeah. Completely. 17 kids. Yeah. I mean, she's a, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Consummate <laughs> work. Not that many, but. Consummate work. Yeah. I'll tell you. Yeah. And I, so, Ed, uh, I mean, I think it also shows that Eddie must have had a lot of trust in you guys to just leave you to, like, run run his business for him. Well, do you remember when I was in the hospital? I do. If you were to ask Ed today, did you have trouble running the club when he was gone? He would say, 
I believe, yes. I had to call him every day to ask him what I was doing wrong. <laughs> now, a lot of people always said to Ed this. This is what people would say to Ed. Ed, you know, you're the luckiest people, we, you know, the luckiest person we know. You got people working for you that you don't have to worry about doing a damn thing. Yeah, How many he, people can say that? Not too many. He had it dialed in, I think. Yeah. You know, but what a relationship you guys had. And you still have, I hope. Oh, you know? yeah. Uh, he still, look. Do you guys talk a lot still? Yeah, well, whenever he needs his cat fed, when he goes away, he calls Dan. He doesn't know. He thinks I still work for him. <laughs> well, apparently you still do in a yeah. sense, I guess. But I mean, I don't have a problem with it. It's simple. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, that's, that, that's a, we don't have to talk at all. Yeah. He picks up the phone, calls me. Can I ask you to do that? Ed. You're talking to me, just say yes. Yeah. Would you consider Ed one of your best friends? On Block Island? Yes. Yeah. 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 Great yeah. guy. Yeah. So can we go back to the bands just very quickly? Bands, because I, I I love music, as yeah. you know. You We've had many conversations right. about music. I'm just curious. What if you had to, and I know it's hard to pick one. Right. Give me your top three, top five favorite bands that you, or shows that you've booked ever. Okay. And I'll be cute, number one. NRBQ, hands yeah. down. Great. Harry hands Adams. Yeah. 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 They were they were just awesome. Yeah. They did a great job. Yeah. Uh Taj Mahal. Oh. Oh my Wait, gosh. He played at Yellow Kittens. Yeah. Get yeah. out of here. Yeah. I, brought, I, I brought wasn't him. old enough to get in, but I sat outside. Nineteen eighty six I booked yeah. Taj Mahal. Wow. Yeah. That's when Don and Diane ran the place. Okay. The one year that they ran it before Ed took over. Yeah. I booked Taj Mahal. And it was it solo or was he with his band? He, no, solo. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And it, it was unbelievable. Wow. So I go NRBQ, Taj Mahal. Then I would say there was a uh, Steve Smith and the Nakeds. Right. Is up there in the top five. I won't, I, I won't, uh, I think the uh, the band that we both don't use too much uh, out of uh, Connecticut, Mystic, you mm-hmm. know what I'm talking about. I certainly do. Yeah. Uh, they basically were an awesome band. They awesome. were. I mean, I hands mean, down. I mean, if they still if, are maybe one of the premier if they went outfits. Out, if that was not a mistake that was made, and I, I give them that much. Um, bad mistake. Bad mistake. Could have rectified it. Sure. But money was too important, so we leave it alone. Well, it's always tricky when art art and money collide. Right. But But I would still recommend them to anybody that wanted a band that's awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. I and agree with you. Now other bands, the Joe Burrell and the Unknown Blues Band was a great band that came in. Mm-hmm. His his favorite line, he said, my mother told me this, and I use it all the time. It doesn't cost anything to be polite. That's true. Hello, Mrs. Smith. Hello, Mr. Smith. It doesn't cost you a dime. I, I use it all the time. It's the truth. I'm and, the same way. Would you please go screw yourself? Yeah. yeah. That, See, it's, but you, it's how politely, you say it. You say it so nicely. Right. right. That's now, all. a quick uh, side note yeah. on Joe Burrell and right. the Unknown Blues Band. Uh, his guitar player, I believe, was Paul Asbell. Oh, yes. Remember Paul? Paul was So there. they were a Burlington, Vermont band. Yes. Because I, I never met Joe. But I, I know I, I've lived and played right. in the Burlington scene for a bit, and uh, Paul Asbell is still up there, and he's still the premier number one guitar player yeah. in the city of Burlington. Yes, he is. And at the time, Joe Burrell and the Unknown Blues Band, they were just untouchable. I mean, talk about a, a pocket and a groove and he was great a, players. He was a wonderful showman. Yeah. He did a great job. They did a great job for us. We used to book them four times a year in the summertime. Yeah. We loved them. Yeah. Okay. Like we love Steve Smith. Steve Smith became the Joe Burrell because Steve Smith, to me, 
He's that guy. Yeah. He's a showman. He is. I mean, even as old as he is, he's, he gets up there and he makes you say, wow. It's the same as Annie used to say to me, I used to die when I booked him for four days. Oh my God, four days of Steve. But he's, he's entertaining and then he drew people like you couldn't believe. And the bottom line was, if that door was high, you, everybody made money. Yeah, the numbers don't lie. I mean, if a band works, it works. Doesn't matter how you feel about right. it. Right. Yeah, I know what Annie thinks. I mean, right. no, yeah. but, but it was you know at the kittens, the bartenders, our bartenders were spoiled. We spoiled them. Honest to God, truth. I say it today. I tell it most people. Nobody ever quits at the kittens because no. of why? Because it's a lifetime job. It was. It what you don't you don't leave something that's good. And you you make a lot of money. Yeah. Well, and but that has to be, you know, dovetailed with how you're treated as well, though. That's I mean, right. you know, yeah. all the money in the world won't make no. you last at somewhere where you're, somebody that's mistreats right. you, right. and that's no. key. Because there are, there's, uh, you know, a, a couple establishments, one in particular that I'm thinking about out here, that probably makes more money as a bar than any other. Right. And every year you go back, it just seems like it's a different staff and scene and all that. Very so true. You know, um, My, you know, I. I don't know if you know this, but when Patty and I got married, our reception was at uh, Yellow Kittens. Really? Yeah. So Dan actually, I met with him, and I'm like, I don't even. I was young. I was like yeah. 13, and I was like, you know, what, what do we do? We need a band. And he's like, well, I, I'm thinking of booking the Memphis Rockabillies for that weekend. Let me see if we can, you know. Huh? And he helped me, so it was so much more affordable because they were the band coming out. They were already housing them and yeah. all that, and it was just so it was so great. He was just awesome. And then you also did another wedding. My very good friends, uh, Jim Chase and Logan Ma. Yeah, that's right. Now, now their their wedding was not planned originally to be Never. at Yellow Kittens, but a hurricane or a nor'easter started to track. Hurricane. A hurricane started tracking up the coast, and it was the wedding was in danger of not happening, and you guys saved the day, gave them a venue, and uh, it yeah. was a great wedding Here, from all accounts. From here's what head. happened. I lived at Doug Mott's house. The wedding was going to be at, in that yard. Doug and Candy called me, called me over and said to me, Dan, uh, we may have to move the wedding. Can you help us? And I said, what do you need? And he said, they said, can we move it into the kittens? And I said, one second, give me the phone. I picked up the phone, called Ed. Ed, I'm sitting here with Doug and Candy Mott. They're asking me a question. What can we do for them? He said, tell them, move the wedding right inside. No questions asked. We'll shut our business down. They got the club. I think those three words that he just said describe Dan. What do you need? What do you need? You yep. know, you just said that like you would say it to almost anybody. Anybody, yeah. And if he doesn't say that to you, don't ask again. Yeah, <laughs> you know? absolutely. That's a true. big statement. Hundred percent true. Because Dan's always been there for anybody, and that's the question. What do you need? Annie Hall. She got married there. Uh, Bill Pageant got married there. Uh, Baines Transfer. I mean, I can go on and on and on. Yeah. It's been the place that people came to because it was Ed was there, and it's a bar. It's a bar and it's a restaurant and it's all in one and you don't have to go anywhere. And again, I think that speaks to you and Ed because you're talking about the most important day. Well, you know, te it's technically it's supposed to be the more, more, more important days of your life. And people are out here, they want to have it at your bar. They don't want to have it in a, in a field or a nope. church or a beautiful you know, dining room somewhere. They want to have it at Yellow Kittens. When you decorate that place, as they did for Jim Chase's wedding, yep. 
Lisa uh, Shala came in and decorated the TVs by making them look like Christmas presents. You didn't even see a neon sign. Everything was hidden. You thought it was the palace. Yeah, we... It was it, we had the deck outside. I mean, it, it yeah. covers it. It's it's I mean, so it, awesome. It's the spot. So, so great. So that's why it's that way. Okay, let's take a quick break and check in with Captain Hank Hewitt from Block Island Fishworks with the fishing report. Hank, what's happening? Coming at you with the fishing report. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Rich. So in our waters, we have what are called scup or oftentimes porgies. Uh, scup, scup is the name for the port, same fish, uh, often referred to as an ocean sunfish in, around New England. Scup is pretty much relative to Rhode Island. Anywhere else you go, you hear porgies. Uh, they are a ground fish. They mix in with the sea bass. So if you're fishing with sea bass, very often you get bycatch of porgies. Uh, they're they're an extremely good eating fish, and so they will they will be eventually moving off and moving out of the ground. But before they do, they're going to be feeding heavily. So you can find them. Oftentimes, you find them a little bit shallower than the sea bass, but your better pieces are often going to come out in a little bit deeper water. Uh, fishing for sea bass and the same equipment you use for sea bass is as effective for the porgy scup. And they're a very they're they're quite delectable fish, and oftentimes. Sometimes they're scaled, gutted, and cooked whole on the grill. So it's it's a fun fish to work with. I'm Captain Hank of Block Island Fishworks. Tight lines and screaming reels. Catch them up. Thanks so much, Hank. Okay, uh, Rich, what are we going to talk about now with Dan? So, um, all right, let's let's move away from music a okay, little yeah, bit. Now, yeah. let's ask some questions about you. So yeah. what is with the two different socks? What is your fashion statement here? Okay. How did this come about? Okay. When I was growing up as a, a young child, I lived in a family of five girls that were older than me, and I was the youngest. Oh, my God. And my father and mother, they were Catholics, they were Democrats, and they were very, very, everything was in order, clean, everything was tight. My mother always used to say, when I left the house, make sure you always have clean socks and underwear on, because you represent me. Because <laughs> it's good advice, I guess. Yeah, I never thought about uh, that. Okay, yeah. so this is a kind of like when she died. This is kind of like saying to her, "Ha ha ha, you're gone." This would drive <laughs> her crazy. Oh my gosh! I was always wondering why. This is not what I was expecting as, for an as, answer. As, as my mother's favorite saying was, "You're nothing but a horse's ass." <laughs> to everyone, or just you? No, no, to me when I did things stupid. This is what she would say to me if she was right there. So now you're like, I can do whatever I want to right. be as stupid yes. as I want. And after 10 years, that one year, the 11th year, I wore the same two socks for one year. People don't know that, but I did that for her. Now, did you launder them in between, or were they just... <laughs> I never you, you, put two socks together. Right. No, but you, you know, washed I mean, those socks the, oh, during yeah. that year, oh, right? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. good. So yeah. there's like hopefully one day, at least but every couple the, weeks you were walking around. You mean you, you wore a matching pair of socks oh, for, for a year? A year. In oh, honor oh, of your oh. mom's 10th I was out here when I yeah. did it, too. Gotcha. Because oh. I was out here when my mother passed. So that's why that is. Okay. Well, that clears no up other a big reason. one for me. Yeah. Yeah. And you also now, again, it's a podcast so people can't right. see, but we're going we're gonna to do some pictures at some right. point and put them on Instagram. Right. But it, it's not just the socks. You have a very distinct outfit. I, I call it a uniform, the Dan Cahill uniform. Yeah. So beyond the mismatched socks, there's a, like a pair of kind of uh, baggy-ish kind of cargo-y pants that are rolled up to about the middle of your shin, I would say. They wouldn't be baggy on me. 
No, okay. no, no. That's uh, what I used mean, to happen. Yeah. I there did that. That's the look. That's how okay. I did. Dan just You know why I his... did that? Why? To show the socks. Oh, okay. Uh. That makes sense. And here's what happened. The young kids on Block Island back in the 80s and early 90s, this was not a fad like it is today, two different socks. And now it is? It is now. Uh, I would agree. I see it more. Okay. And the thing is, the kids used to do this word. Uh, Melissa Pike used to ride by with her grandmother, Claire. And she'd yell out the window, Dan, roll your pants up. I want to see the sock. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where it came from. And then on, on top, there would be a the, the uh, cut-off sweatshirt. But not just like the cut-off sleeves. I mean, it was like barely a sweat. It was only a sweatshirt in the sense that it was once a sweatshirt. But it was once a sweatshirt. Yeah, that's that's. How, I didn't like to throw things away, especially the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young one and the Grateful Dead one. I used them until I almost shredded in my yeah. thing because I like those two sweatshirts. Yeah, right. So I don't care about my appearance. Right. I dress for me, not for anybody else. Right. And, and the hat, too. You have right. that. I've always worn a hat and different hats, vest. I can tell you a story about Peter McNerney. I got to tell you this one. Peter left a, 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 a dungaree jacket at the club one night. And he left the island and he disappeared for like three years. I mean, he moved down south or something like that. And I got found it and it fit me. And I wore it for three years. And one day he was at the coffee shop and he said, you know, Dan, I left a dungaree jacket just like the one you were wearing three years ago at the club. I took it off and said, here it is. He said, I can't believe it. It looks brand new. I said, I don't wear on clothes. You wear them. I just use them. And he got that back. So people leave things at the club. If it fits me, I might wear it. Why You don't know it's yours well if you come back you'll get it back well what do they say owner own or possession is yeah. finders uh, keepers 99 of ownership now do you remember me when i used to paint numbers on my truck i my don't van. think i do no well i used to have a a blue van that nick d patrilla sold me okay and when i was in the painting business every summer as the summer wore on i used to write numbers on my van 91 days left 90 days left 89 <laughs> days left 55 days left until Labor Day. Yeah. And people never got it. But there was a woman, one woman and her husband, basically used to say to me, you know, we feel hurt because you do that. We, you think, we think you're talking about us. Well, I said, no, I'm not really. It's just my countdown. But that's what I was doing. I, I, I kind of really stretched the truth a little bit. Yeah. And that woman is Naomi and her husband from down the neck. Oh. They were teachers. And when she moved here and he moved here full time, they came to me after that summer and said, we understand exactly <laughs> we what get those it. numbers now. were. <laughs> oh, now we get now it. Now we see. Oh, that's a good story. Oh, man. Uh, Before I think we're about yeah. to keep going down this road. I had one quick question going back. Do you know how old Yellow Kitten's building is? Well, from what we know, we've been told wrong. Bob Downey says different. We have always gone by the date 1876. Wow. Okay. But uh, Bob Downey thinks it's older than that. He thinks it's 74. He thinks uh, somewhere along the line it got lost. But even at that, the original building, uh, 1876. And how long has it been called Yellow Kittens? And and why was it called Yellow Kittens? It's always been Yellow Kittens. That was from the original day. What's the story behind the name? Uh, 
I that part I, I'm gonna I'm gonna play dumb on because I think that basically it was uh, kind of like a a brothel. Okay, and uh, rum runners and different people like that because where the outbuilding is, there used to be a hole underneath inside the building, and it led to the beach. That was my next question. Is that true to that story? Well. I can't disagree with it. And that's what it. I heard. They would smuggle, yeah. the, the ships would come in and they'd right. smuggle during right. Prohibition the booze through the tunnel in the dunes and it would just come up in the basement and, of the house. I've heard that too. And, and I fill that hole in by building a floor down there when we made it into a wine room. But it was there when Tommy Mahoney lived in that basement. That hole was there. T-Bird lived in the basement of Yellow Kittens? He lived in where that hole is, that there was a floor. He lived when he worked for his brother at, Okay, and then he moved upstairs into the band room. Wow. Was anyone aware he was living there? <laughs> <laughs> or did he, or one day you go down to well, get some wine well, and Tommy? No, 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 it wasn't a wine room at the time. What was down in that basement at one time was a a furnace that heated the apartments, and there was a a tank, oil tank, and then there was a a, a sleeping room, and that's where Tommy lived one summer. Wow! And then he moved upstairs when Jay took over. He moved upstairs, but he used to work for Dick. Yep, yep. They both did. So then, uh, okay, uh, well, I, I love that mythology yeah. of Yellow yeah. Kittens. Well, I, we'd love to have Eddie on, Ed McGovern on, too, I and think talk to should. him a little more about that I think at some you, Because point. he knows a lot more than, yeah. I don't know all, all of it. Yeah, that's but, fine. But he, he knows a lot. We'll talk to him. Um, so again, beyond now, beyond the mismatched socks, right. beyond, you have a couple other quirky characteristics one being that you are, I believe, the founder of what is now known as the Block Island Left-Handers Club. Yes. And what is the genesis of that organization? Okay. When I came to Block Island in 1984, I walked into the grocery store, Seaside. Okay. And behind the counter was two people. There was Louis Marcella's sister and Sharon Littlefield. That's it. And then me. And all three of us were left-handed. In my life, in my whole life to that day, I had never been in the same room with three people, all left-handed. Wow. That was the beginning of the left-handed club that day. And I made the deal with Sharon a couple of days, a couple of months later. And I had T-shirts made that said the Block Island Left-Handed Club, (laughs) and there was a hand on it, okay? And it was made so that you you knew it was a left-hander. To this day, right now, I give out 100 left-handed calendars to people on Block Island of the people that live here in the winter. I don't give out all of them because I don't have enough of them. I would say that we have 20% of this island is left-handed. And does that seem like a, a, a big number compared to most places? Nine in the world. Really? 9%. So almost double the average. The, the mm. global average. And I have no idea why. Huh. It's got to have something to do with the brain and loving Block Island. Yes, yeah, something. The art, something. A lot of people say the art people and yes, things like that. The left versus the, right brain. Right. Yeah. But, but it's very, and, and you're very aware of it. I, all my life, I was always aware of left-handed people. Yeah. But out here, I'm, I'm renting cars and people are signing and they're left-handed, left-handed, left-handed. You get 10 in a row. I mean- and I'm saying to myself, see, they're coming to Block Island. It's not, it's just I notice it more than anyone. I see it all the time. And was there like a, uh, do you guys have like annual meetings or no. do you guys ever get together and hang, I, or it's just an informal it's kind an of fun inf- thing? It was always, I used to, 
sponsor the road race when the bachelor's I used to have t-shirts and people that were left-handed would get them it was kind of like just something I started yeah it's yeah. A fun yeah. thing that's cool yeah. man right and so, basically Ed, you know you think about it Ed McGovern Doug Michelle and Henry DuPont was on the council there was four left-handed people on the Block Island council at one time wow out of five you don't see that too often. There's yeah. a campaign slogan. Vote for me. I'm a righty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but not right wing. <laughs> right. I'm just yeah. a righty. All right. <laughs> we need balance on the town council. We need to balance this thing out with okay. some right-handed people because these yeah. left-handed are taking over. Yeah. Just yeah. make sure you sit on the far mm-hmm. side so when you're writing things down, you're not bumping yeah. elbows with the other guys. I mean, people like, uh, there was like. <laughs> you're on the end, Larry. You're on the end, Larry. <laughs> it happens a lot. So, I mean, basically, that's how that started. Okay. There was no other reason it started. All right. I, I could be mistaken, but I have a feeling you may be a title holder in a certain category. What's that? What is the longest you've gone without going to the mainland, America? How long? I've gone a year. You've gone an entire year without a single trip to the mainland. Actually, when I moved here in 84, I didn't, when I left to go get my car and come back, I went a year without going off. Wow. Wow. That's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Especially back then because now there's, there's so many more services here and things you can do and stuff, you know, but, but that back then it was death. Now remember the Carol Jean came on the, that summer yep. when I first came here, uh, the Manitou and the Manatee were the boats. Yeah. And they the, were corks as I called them. And for those who don't recall those little corks, they were terrible. No, you know, in the winter, you, especially. You, I like to say you could use the bathroom, order a drink, and hold the door open at the same time because everything was right there. You could reach the bar and the toilet, and it was all just in one little space. Yeah, wow. yeah but I've gone a year, and, and but that's it. But as I retired and, and learned as a senior citizen, you have to go to the doctors. I get to go off a lot more in the winter because of dermatologists, yeah. eye doctors, dentists. All those things. And the Carol Jean, just a point of interest, was the beginning I, was the Malcolm beginning Soda, of the beginning of an, of an era because you could actually bring an 18, you know, a, several big trucks over at one time. It was oh, the beginning yeah. of big trucks coming to the island. It, it was you know. kind of the resurgence of yeah. the tourism world. Yeah. Oh, good one. Okay. Yeah. Oh, we we often discuss that. That, that as a uh, benchmark, yeah. right? It wow. was. Yeah. Okay. It's a Malcolm Greenaway photo. I think it's a Malcolm Greenaway that says beginning of an era, and it was the Carol Jean backing in. It was a photo of it. And and do, do you know, just as a point of interest, were people back in the day when they said, we're going to have, we're, we're getting this new ferry that's going to bring all these big trucks, was that like an issue like it is when they try to like start the fast ferry? And I, don't, I don't think the people on the island, I'm guessing, back then didn't really think about how much was going to change. Yeah. I don't think Alan Hall, the monk, or or... Well, Freddie uh, Lee or any of those people thought we were going to get dramatic change like we did. Nobody does, though. I no. think right. anywhere you go. But I think once the Anna C came on and the Carol Jean and then the London Ferry started running a boat, they they knew that something was changing. Yeah. But yeah. when the real change came was when Ed got uh, Bruce Sunland to give us the Tourism Council, our right. own. That's when th- things really That's changed. when you knew, hey, uh, we've been, they found us, uh-oh, here we go. One thing people have to got to understand, and I say this because I know that a lot of islanders that don't have anything to do with tourism don't care about what I'm going to say, is the Tourism Council main job is to promote the island. That's what they're in, tourism. They make their money from room tax. Room taxes, renting hotels. You've got to bring people here. 
to rent those rooms. Yeah. That's right. where their money is. Their job is nothing else but that. Right. That's their job. Yep. So when you say we got too many people, they don't know that. That's not their job. Their job is to create business. Right. And our first episode, our first, in- uh, sorry, our yeah. second episode, our first interviewee right. was uh, Jess Dugan, uh, Jess Willie, Jessica Willie, who's the I heard head it. of it. And, you know, it was great to talk to her because we found out about that challenge, that tightrope she's trying to walk between, <laughs> you know, a pleasing everyone out here and and also doing and presenting block island in the best light in the way it we want it to be presented out there and she she said they're focusing mostly now you know these days on the shoulder season right but she said you know and i didn't even think of it this way it's hard to keep all businesses happy there are businesses that love the day trippers yeah and then there are businesses that love the you know overnighters that stay in hotels and you know it's pretty neat that you can't keep everybody happy all the time no you can't and you know Right now, this episode that we're having right now in the summer is the accidents that happened. Basically, that brought to the forefront a problem that we've had as long as I've been here. Yeah. The rentals of mopeds and people speeding and bicycles. And and it's created. And the more people come, the more is out there. So, I mean, some people say, well, you know, we got to give it. The mopeds aren't going anywhere. That's a business. Right. They're licensed by the state of Rhode Island. It's not like but, Black Island's going to buy them. But there's one thing I do know, and that is that, um, you know, and I, I know this from working the door here at Captain Nick's. Um, one night you have 350 people. That's your crowd. Go smooth as could be. Everybody's well-behaved, having a good time, laughing, dancing. Right. Another night, 350 people, and it's, you know. Chaos. It's the behavior of the people. It's not the quantity necessarily. I mean, it's that affects your utilities, water, right. how much right. bathrooms you use, right. all that. But right. it's really about the behavior of the individuals and, that are getting off the boat. And there's no way to predict which kind of crowd you're going to get no. or what night it's going to happen except the full moon. There is something yes, this is true. completely real about a full moon and how it affects people's behavior because mm-hmm. whenever there's a full moon rich right at the oh, door yeah. we're like batting down the hatches Here i we call go. in sick yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> sorry mark i don't feel good uh, and i text you back and i say it's a full moon rich i've had to, actually i had to put that in your contract yeah, yeah, yeah. no no sick nights on it you work uh, fridays and every full moon yeah yeah, yeah. totally yeah, it is that way yeah it is uh okay so I don't want. I don't want to get too stuck in the in what's go, happening go. here because we're t- we're here to talk about you. Yeah, and there's so many layers that we could peel away and get to really who Dan Cahill is. We we it would never end. There's right. there's layer after layer. Um, so I want to, if it's okay, and and if you don't want to talk about any of this stuff, go. feel free to just say let's next question. Yeah. But um, you know, I've heard some stories about you about yeah. your origins and where you're from and things that have happened to you in the past. And the first one I want to start with right. is that you. Are you appear in the background of the film Dirty Harry? Yes, I did. Can you tell me about that? Well, I lived in San Francisco and basically in the 80s, uh, 70s, 60s. There was a, a, when you're not working, you try to make whatever money you can. So in, in California, there's basically extras, like there is in photos of movies here. I happened to see a sign and it said, extras needed for a movie, blah, blah, blah. Yesterday, let's say, Clint Eastwood, blah, blah, blah. I'll go. I said, I went. So I go over and they just said, basically, all you got to do is be part of the crowd. Okay? No problem. So you're in the movie. So you got to remember now, in the 60s, 
I had hair down to the middle of my back. I had a beard. Were you a hippie? I was a hippie. I traveled for 10 years doing that stuff. So you, if you look at me, you wouldn't know me that far away. I'm also, not to change the subject, I'm also on the stage at Woodstock. But I had a beard and I had long hair and you wouldn't know me, but I was there. Are I, you in I the love film? this podcast. I'm learning so much. But, Are you yeah. in the Woodstock movie anywhere? Have you seen yourself in ba- that? Basically, I have not seen myself in that because okay. basically that was done, that's differently. How did you get on the stage at Woodstock? Because uh, I went to the show almost two weeks before the actual day of the show. And basically they were looking for people to work. I had a ticket to go to the, the show. But they said, well, we need people to help build stages and things like that. You want to do that? I said, sure. Put the ticket in my pocket. I said, I'll keep it as a souvenir, right? So I happened to be in one town, and then we had to move. We had to move to Yaskers Farm, yeah. And build the stage there. So because I was doing the building, I got to be backstage. Wow. Did you run into any of the performers? Every one of them. And you talk with them? And- I talked to a lot of them. The only the only one I really didn't talk to was the only person on that show that I, at that time, was not a fan of, and that was the guy that played the Star Spangled Banner, Jimi Hendrix. I've heard of him. So you're yeah. telling me you didn't talk to only Jimi Hendrix because by your choice. <laughs> by my choice. You know, you know, Instead of like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Shucks, I only didn't get to talk to one performer. But I was like, the only one I didn't talk to, I wasn't really crazy about him, was, you know. Yeah. Did you talk to the Grateful Dead? Yeah. Basically, you know, hello, what's yeah, going yeah. on? Hey, hey, how's it going? I got to meet Jerry Garcia one-on-one in San Francisco when I rode my bike down to Los Angeles back in 92. From San Francisco? Bicycle or motorcycle? Bicycle. Oh, boy. I rode it from Seattle, Washington to San Francisco. And Jerry Garcia happened to be standing across the walkway at the hotel I checked into, and he asked me this question. How come you're dressed like that? And I said, <laughs> I just rode my bike down the West Coast. He said, don't you know it's winter? I said, I didn't know. He said, where are you from? And I told him, and he said, are you here tonight? I said, yeah. He said, why don't you come to a show? And I said, by the way, who are you? <laughs> and he said, Jerry Garcia. I said, all right. Here's a ticket, he said. He was doing an acoustic show. The person I met in in Seattle was Neil Young. Oh. And I saw him in concert, the first acoustic show he did. Wow. So I started my bike ride with Young and landed with Garcia. Oh, my God. That's what my life has been like for my whole life. You're like a – it's like Forrest Gump. You just like randomly – because I didn't work. Right. Here's a, here's a story. I'm 79 years old. I turned 79 on Monday, okay? Happy birthday. Thank Happy you. Happy birthday. 39 years of my life, I goofed off. The last 39, I've worked seven days a week. Now I can retire. It's 39 and 39, 78. I'm 79. I don't owe anybody anything. Are you really ever going to retire, though? No, but I mean, it sounds like a great story. It's a, it is a great story. <laughs> And also, I find it interesting that when you know when when Jerry Garcia asks you why do you, why are you dressed like that? Like, because that's... I was in a, a, a bike riding suit that was basically soaking wet from being in the rain all this time. But he asked me that question because you, you, here you are standing daytime 
and some guy is across from you with a bicycle and a, and a bike out riding outfit. Unbelievable. So he asked that question. Wow. But anyways, yeah, I was in that movie. I was also in three movies altogether, all in San Francisco. What were the other ones? Uh, Sidney Poitier's The Ice House. And I was also in uh, uh, Alice B. Tokus. It was Peter I love Seller. you, Alice B. Tokus. Yes, I, I was that in that one too. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But basically, just as a, a, a stand-in, you know, a box lunch and a one day because the union won't allow you to work more than so many days. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. you got you to stay out of that union guy. Yeah. But right. it was fun. So we've so we've also established um, that you were that you were a hippie, self admitted you were a hippie. Easy. Now there's another story I've heard that you were not just a hippie; you were a, a hippie radical, and that you were wanted by the FBI. Uh, well, that's let, let's put it this way. Maybe they were, were they keeping an eye on you. Uh, they they might have been. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. It wasn't. I don't think it was so much the FBI. I think it was more of the people in the narcotic business. Gotcha. Yeah, th that organization, not FBI. You go to that other department that uh, DE or the uh, narcotic bureau. Gotcha. Uh, those people, because they thought I was doing something because they couldn't understand how I could live and be driving around in Lincolns and Cadillacs and valid, Mustangs. Valid question, I guess. Yeah. But uh, That's easy. They weren't yours. Yeah, yeah. they were. They were <laughs> yeah, you're borrowing them. And, and yeah. basically long hair with a beard. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you didn't fit the car. No, you know they look something's out of place. Yeah, yeah, and then and then the other story is that in order to hide from whatever it was, you shaved the beard and all your hair and joined the Harry Krishnas. That I did. Wow, I did join them. Now, what, did what you join life. them out of a spiritual? Was it a no, spiritual no. thing? No, okay. it was hiding. You were hiding. Yeah. Okay. I basically banged the drum in front of the San Francisco airport. I mean, hiding in plain sight to shake plain. the fuzz. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> basically, basically uh, they were they were just a, a source again of basically uh, being able to eat more than anything because I wasn't working and yeah. food. But you know, I just like doing different things. My as my mother always said to me, she felt that I was uh, rich. I was the wrong baby taken from the hospital. I must have been really belonging to a rich family because she said, you never worked really very much. I said, Ma, people like me. That's all. Uh, we love you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I am loving this. I've always yeah. loved you. I love you t even more now. You just... You know, it's just part of... It's a wild life. It's, it's just basically what people should be able to do. I'm going to tell you three things you're not asking me. A lot of people ask me, why aren't you married? I was too selfish to get married. I can't give 51% of me to anyone. I want it all for me. So to get married, you got to be stable. You got to have a job. I never had a job for, for 20, 30 years. Who's going to marry you? Unless they're as sick as you are. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the truth. I mean, I never had children. There's no children anywhere in this world that I don't know about because I didn't have any. It's not what I wanted. You know, that was my choice. I've been here 36 years. I could have got married here. It's not for me. Yeah. I don't, you got to give up a, a lot. And, and it's, it's, it's a give and take. You know, you know what I think? I think you like to give 51% of yourself, but you like to spread it out among Amongst everyone. A lot of people. That's what I do. Yep. Okay. Because that's how I see <laughs> yeah. it. I yep. think, yep. I think you are a giving and sharing but, person more than I know most people are. But I want to be the person making the decisions. Uh, that's right. Fair enough. Yeah. You know, Makes that's, sense. That's what it is. Go ahead. 
Well, I hate to be the bearer of uh, bad news. Are we getting? Well, do we, we have time we, for a little we, more. Yeah, we have a time for just a little more. Like, uh, we, I'd, I'd love to do a lightning round with Dan if we can. Go, go. Want to do that right now? Is that okay? All right. Yeah, Dan, yeah. you ready? So this yeah. is a lightning round. We're just going to throw some quick questions at you. Don't think too hard about them. First thing that comes to your mind, mm. throw it right back at us. Who's going first, Mark? You uh, or me? Rich, go ahead. All right. What age do you think it's okay to refer to someone as an old timer? Uh, whenever they say it's okay. Are you? No. Okay. Good answer. Uh, okay. Uh, who who would you consider a Block Island icon? Mm. I think that basically uh, people that, in my opinion, were Vera Sprague, Claire Pike, Barbara Bibby. Those three women were like, they were Block Island. Yeah. They... That's what, who I think. What's your favorite kind of bagel? Uh, cinema raisin. We already answered this one, but will you retire or will you work till you drop? When the box closes, that's when I'll stop. All right. All, expade, all expense paid trip anywhere you want to go, where would you go? Right here. Good one. Wow. On a scale of one to 10, how good are you at keeping secrets? 50-50. Mm, He's a five. <laughs> he's a five. That's but an honest answer. I guess on a one to ten of honesty, he's a ten. I guess so, right? <laughs> That's Let's, it. Yeah. Wow. Well, I tell you, I can't thank you enough. This has been just great. I, I love when I learn. You know, you think you know, and you try to come up with questions, and you know, but yeah. my goodness, that's that's awesome and uh glad to be a help look we'd love to have you back again because I, I i know i could talk to you for uh, and we have talked for hours and hours oh yeah and hours. i miss our stoop I mean, talks by the way yes, in front of sharkies every morning oh, we had yeah. stoop talk yeah i called it enlightenment by dan yeah he would fill me in well it's, it's all what it is i mean i love this place this is kind of like you know people say do you go on vacation i said every day i get up i'm on vacation this is it. There you have it. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Block Island icon in his own right, a, a fan, an amazing raconteur, and, uh, you know, the, a guy who I think, if you ask me, he's got it figured out. He's I, got he's got this life thing kind of linked. I think he's had it figured out for a long time. Yep. Yep. Dan, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. We'll see you around. And thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed as much as we did. Uh, I'm Rich Trethaway. I'm Mark Scortino. Don't forget to um, send us your questions and comments. Uh, you can email them to us at twoguysonbi at gmail.com. And uh, please follow us on uh, social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Go to wherever you listen to our podcast and subscribe to our podcast. Very important, right? Absolutely. We appreciate it if you can do it. But yep. And do what you can for us. Sure. All right. Well, once again, thanks to Dan Cahill. Thank you. And uh, have a great week. Yeah. See you next time. Hey, you're wearing a Reese's Peanut Butter Cups t-shirt. Yeah. Are you a fan? Um, you are what you eat. Ah. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> Feeling pretty okay. In the Bahamas, wearing pajamas 24 hours a day. Two Guys on Block Island is recorded live at Captain Nick's Rock and Roll Bar. Music, courtesy of the Booze Beggars. All segments produced by Rich Trethaway and Mark Scortino. See you next time, Cap. <laughs> <laughs>